Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. It's great to be on fire for the Lord. Our enthusiasm often powers the spread of the gospel. However, that enthusiasm can be a double-edged sword. Here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page with today's sermon, Untamed Fire. Good morning. If you missed out before, my name is Steve Page. I am one of the uh, pastors here on staff, and it's my honor to bring to you the Word of the Lord. Uh, before we stand up and, and, and we read the Word, I just want to give you a little context uh, to what we're going uh, to read here. This is right after two very significant events. One was Jesus revealing that Judas was going to be the one that was going to betray him, and also um, the big Passover meal, also known as the Last Supper, that Jesus had with his disciples. And he is only hours away from being arrested, abandoned by his disciples, beaten by authorities, and then eventually crucified. So with that in mind, with that context in mind, please join me stand and um, to honor God's word as I read it here. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, have you uh, ever seen someone get a little bit too uh, passionate, a little too into something, the point where what they're doing is completely incongruent with the environment and the actions that are happening around them? Well, check out this video clip of an overzealous drummer. The video starts out with this woman singing this very famous Frank Sinatra song, one of my favorite, My Way, you know, and, and just the, this, uh, the video picks up just as now the drums are supposed to come into this song. And when it does, something amazing takes place. Okay, after he sits down, he gets up and he becomes even more dramatic in his expressions and more elaborate in, in what he's doing there. I mean, it just cracks you up. You know, think about <clears throat> um, how, how, like, uh, the, the bass player. How is this guy just sitting there not saying, well, you sit down, you know? <laughs> you know, I, I just, I can't understand it. This guy's so grandiose, you know? In fact, he's so grandiose uh, that, that you start forgetting about the singer, don't you? Like, you don't even hear her anymore. Now, even if there's a little over the top, you have to admit the drummer was passionate. But isn't the, the, the goal and the passion of a band member supposed to support the singer, not overshadow them? Yet it seemed like the singer and the drummer were entirely two different wavelengths altogether. Now, today we continue in our sermon series from the Gospel of Mark called, uh, of Mark called Hope Restored. And as you just heard from our reading today, we see something similar to that drummer and the singer. The backup team is on a total different wavelength than the leader. And like that drummer, the apostle, Peter is a man of passion. But my question is, is passion enough to get it right as a Christian? What is the cost of untamed fire when he misses the mark? 
Now, Peter is probably one of my favorite biblical characters to preach on because, well, I can really relate to his goofy character. You know, like me, he, he's the kind of character, the Christ follower, who can say and do something really incredible one minute, but then in seconds, I mean in seconds, he can completely mangle any merit that he just raised up. So I want to go through this text here, and you'll see what I mean. Now remember, again, this is right after the whole Judas betrayal situation, um, and I'm wondering that after they sang the hymn and got God-focused again, they went out and they're thinking, glad we got that betrayal thing out of the way, and I'm so glad it wasn't me. I thought it'd be you, John, but okay, it was Judas, you know. But just when you think the coast is clear, Jesus lays this on them. You will all become deserters. Not just one of them, you will betray me, but you will all become deserters. Now, when Peter hears this shocking statement, and it must have been shocking to hear this out of Jesus' mouth, there's no humble inquiry like at the Last Supper. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? No. He, Peter goes full bore into zealot mode and declares emphatically his allegiance with Jesus. Peter says to him, even though all become deserters, I will not How's that for humility, yeah? I wonder, I wonder while he said this, who does he mean by all, by the way? You know, is he like when he said, even though all might become deserters, I won't, right? You ever think he's kind of doing something like that? Then Jesus says this, truly I tell you. Now, whenever Jesus starts off an expression with truly I tell you, that is code for saying, what I'm about to say here is unwavering truth. So he says, truly I tell you, this day, this very night before the cock crows twice, you, Peter, will deny me three times. Now, you would think that you would think this would slow the roll of most people, but not Peter. Just like the drummer who sits for a moment, but then gets up and becomes even more dramatic. Peter doubles down and ratchets up his rhetoric to Jesus. And he says vehemently, you know, notice that, vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all of them, apparently they all caught fire too. All of them said the same. Now, briefly, let me add this piece uh, to the situation as well. We see Peter's out-of-control zeal quite starkly later on in the evening when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Gospel of John, chapter 18, it puts it this way. When the authorities come to pick up Jesus, what does he do? He picks up a sword, violently acts out on behalf of Christ by cutting off a man's ear. We see Peter here not only willing to die for Jesus, but even willing to kill for him. You talk about passionate zeal. But Jesus, though, what does he do? Oh, good job, Peter. No, once again, and even for the last time, he rebukes Peter, and and, and Matthew 26 puts it this way. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who take the sword will die by the sword. See, Peter is living by the sword. Jesus is living by the cross. And so again, the untamed passion is undermining the leader's goal, not supporting it. See, bottom line, very often, not always, not always, but very often, zeal is not a good barometer that you got it right about the things of God and the goals of God, the approaches of God. The Jewish people saw this problem Hundreds of years before Christ, and someone made note of it like this. In Proverbs chapter 19, it says, It's not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor be hasty and miss the mark. Now, knowledge here is not referring to like having a high IQ or the kind of knowledge you gain from taking a bunch of AP classes in high school. It has more to do with the idea of wisdom, of discernment, of understanding. In other words, being without discernment and understanding as to the goal and the way to that goal 
one's one, a well-intended zeal can cause us to miss God's mark by a mile. And isn't that exactly what happened to Peter? After three years, he still isn't quite clear as to what Jesus' mission is all about, nor is he clear in understanding of his very own shortcomings. And so what happens? He misses the mark badly. As I said before, I can relate to Peter. I really can. Now, you are probably going to be totally surprised by this, but as a young preacher, I too was a little over the top in my delivery. <laughs> and it's hard to believe. In fact, to be quite honest with you, I was like Peter on steroids, to be honest with you. My close friend, my close friend, we went to do a chapel, this college chapel together. There's like hundreds, like, you know, 600 people out there. And he did the singing. I did the sermon. I preached on the Good Samaritan and helping the poor. And after we were done, he says, well, you know, you're really, you're, you were really on fire. You got your point across. But I have to tell you, you left the first two rows just singed. <laughs> that fire was coming out, man. But here's the thing. This is the, honest to goodness. You know what I thought? Oh, well, that's on them. I'm just preaching God's word. Let them deal with it. <laughs> you can't imagine me saying that, can you? Yeah. <laughs> like Peter, I lacked the humility to take in the caution and words, wise words of my friend. And after all, when I preached, I reasoned to myself, look, I'm using the scripture. I have personal experience here. I've lived overseas in poor areas. I made sure in my sermon I'm always theologically accurate and correct. And every example I gave was based in reality and fact. I wasn't exaggerating. I didn't embellish. I wasn't making stuff up. Man, I lived it. I live in a refugee camp. I live with tribal people. I know what it's like to see lepers, to see people with profound hunger. I knew it, man. But such experiences not only made the fire hot, but it made it stubborn and even a little arrogant. I say stubborn because you know what I did? I continued to preach the way I did about that sermon on the Good Samaritan, despite what my, father, my uh, uh, friend said, until one incident I preached my sermon yet again on the Good Samaritan at a church, and as usual, people came up to me afterward. Either, either they avoided me, this is always interesting about people, they just completely avoid me, or they always come up and say, wow, that was really, wow, that was so passionate, you know. But one nice uh, older lady, uh, much older, white hair, hunched over, she had a cane, and she walked up to me slowly, and she looked at me, and she says, young man, that was some message. I haven't felt that guilty in years. <laughs> And that's when I knew that my fire was missing the mark. My goal, my mark, was to motivate Christians, motivate them to love on the poor, to help the poor, to care for the poor. The goal was transformation. The goal was action and conviction. But mostly what I left behind was guilt. And look, let's get real about guilt you only get a few miles per gallon on guilt. For most folks, it lasts about as far as you get to the end of the church driveway. Then it's gone, you know. So it doesn't really help very much. Moreover, and what's interesting too, guys like me, we often want to justify our zealous actions, our untamed fire, by, after all, pointing out to Jesus in the temple when he got really ticked off and he drove out with a whip, the money changes and overturning tables. Or we like to point out how, how he verbally excoriated the Pharisees in Matthew chapter, you brood of vipers and all that kind of stuff. We want to use that stuff. In other words, we have biblical justification for our fire. And quite frankly, maybe sometimes we are justified in getting that harsh. 
But if we're honest, zealous folks rarely seek to restrain, redirect, or tame our fire by also reflecting honestly and deeply upon other startling actions and words of Jesus, like, love your enemy. Or when he's on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, these people who are killing me, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And by the way, just to put a period on my story here, all of my over-the-top talk about the poor really moved very few people, not emotionally, it moved a lot of people emotionally, but it moved very few to actually be more compassionate and caring and generous. They got excited, but few got to action. But when I would simply, what I started to do is invite people to hang out with me because I lived with the poor during those days here in the United States. And I said, why don't you come join me and meet these folks? And people started to change as they interacted with these people. And it was through personal interaction with the poor, not by me hammering anybody or being overzealous. That's what won folks over. That's what hit the mark. And a similar point I want to make is this. You know, zeal for a good thing without the wisdom of God can easily, easily end up dismissing others, judging others, and even vilifying others. Let me elaborate. Probably the most glaring and alarming incident of this in recent memory happened just last month. I'm talking about the incident at the Lincoln Memorial involving a group of boys from Covington High School and this boy in particular. Now, because of a short video, did you guys see and hear about this news? Raise your hand, yeah. Okay, most of you did, 90% of you did. You know, so this incident, these boys from a Catholic high school were, were, were protesting the, you know, uh, the abortion laws and stuff like that, and then these other groups that were protesting something else, and another Native American group protesting something else. Anyway, they kind of collided with each other there, and there was a short video released that initially framed this kid and his schoolmates as harassing this Native American man um, who they said was trying to bring peace. Now, this one picture touched off thousands of angry and, and hostile tweets and articles and Facebook posts and news reports. But as more details came out, as more understanding came out through longer versions of videos, many of those tweets were erased. And for the first time in my whole life, I saw reporters on TV say, we blew it, we made a mistake, we jumped the gun. When you see this picture and you recall that incident, what do you feel viscerally? What do you see? It's become like a national litmus test. Is this a smiling teenager caught in an awkward moment? Or is this a racist smirk? What do you see? Now look, I am not here to adjudicate in any way the guilt or innocence of this young man. Okay, I am not. I'm going to say that again. I am in no way, don't write me, I am in no way saying this guy's right, he's wrong. You want to think what you want to think, that's fine with me, okay? I bring this up, okay? I bring this up because I want to point out the passionate and zealous reaction to the incident by full-grown, educated adults. Adults who found it their moral duty to blast off an incendiary tweet filled with violent words. So passionate and confident that he understood completely what happened here by looking at the short video clip, a very well-known professor, scholar, and writer on religion, I don't want to say his name because I'm not here to shame anybody, tweeted this, honest question, have you ever seen a more punchable face than this kid's? Now believe me, his words weren't the worst. There was a famous Hollywood producer, again, I don't care to name names here, he said this, he says, wouldn't it be great to toss these kids headfirst into a wood chipper? 
No, I'm not kidding. Now take that in a second. A college professor, Hollywood producer, advocating violence against a minor. Man, when you advocate violence against a minor, shouldn't there be a bell that goes off in your head saying, whoa, wait a minute, slow to roll. But not them. It remind, their words remind me of this Proverbs in Proverbs 18 where it says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing their personal opinion. If we follow that verse, Twitter would end tomorrow. <laughs> now look, let, let's give these people the benefit of the doubt. They were really upset at what they saw to be a racist act. And quite frankly, we should all be upset about racism. That's a huge issue in our country, and it's a terrible issue, and we should be upset by it. It's a good thing. It is a godly thing to be angry at at racism. But was their kind of zealousness against racism hitting the mark or missing the mark? You know, didn't anybody find it a bit ironic that as they were expressing moral outrage... They were also calling forth in the very same moment morally outrageous acts on kids. And that is what makes the words not just wrong, but dangerous. And I say that because this kid and his family uh, were, were later threatened uh, with violence and harm and all kinds of things. Somebody actually put their address online to, and all that kind of stuff. See, this is how blind, unrestrained, unwise, untamed fire can make us. Crazy stuff. Now, as we recall the story in D.C., let's not fall into the Peter syndrome ourselves. In other words, let's not thinking, well, even, even if those people would do that, I would never do that. Let me tell you straight up, we all have our hot-button issues that can release some pretty serious, untamed zeal. I have spoken to some of you. Y'all got buttons. <laughs> but what is, you know, hey man, yeah. <laughs> what, what are yours? I mean, if we can just be honest, what's the issue in your heart and mind that, that, that fills you not only with disdain for somebody else, but, but kind of creates a bit of a zealous arrogance in your own heart? Is it talk about conservatism, liberalism, build the wall, the Me Too movement, racism, abortion, same-sex marriage, white male privilege, a preacher who wears jeans while he's preaching. Hala. I know some of you had a problem with these this morning. <laughs> Am I hitting your hot button here? So and the thing is, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is, let, can we just admit it? Because if we can't, we can't name it, we can't nail it. You know, we, 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 we can't overcome what we overlook. We have to be honest with ourselves. So how do we under, overcome this kind of problem and be better witnesses for Christ and his agenda for the world? Not mine or some political party or some kind of identity group, but his agenda for the world. Boy, I could write a whole book on how we could do this. But I'm just going to point out one major thing, a lesson which I derived from Peter's well-meaning but very often flawed journey with Jesus. And that is just simply this. Be very intentional about working on humility. To make sure you never fall as a Christian into the Peter syndrome, as I call it, be sure that you have a very sober view of yourself, a very sober view of reality of your own life, a very sober view of your own capacities for really blowing it. Humility is not an exercise in self-flagellation or self-denigration, nothing like that. It is simply a sober and realistic understanding of who we are and what we are capable of doing, both good and not so good. 
Peter's vehement promises to Jesus seems nearly void of any sober view of his potential or proclivity and, quite frankly, his own history for really messing things up. His lack of humility comes out as, well, even if everybody else deserts you, I won't. What makes him so darn confident he's better than everybody else? As a young Christian, you know, I got great advice from a mentor of mine. I was just a Christian, yep, like a year. And I, and I meet with this guy all the time, and, he, and he'd hold his fingers, and he'd say, Steve, we're always this close. We're always this close, Steve. Remember that. I said, this close to what? This close to failing God. Never forget that. And that has stuck with me for more than three decades of ministry, and it's kept me well-grounded. That and the fact that as a non-Christian, I was capable of things, folks. I was capable of doing things that most of you found not only wrong, but despicable and sometimes maybe even evil. And having a sober grasp of my own potential for profound wrongdoing sets me up better to restrain and redirect my judgmental zeal with the various peoples that I talk to when they disclose to me some pretty god-awful stuff. Now, I was talking to our young adult director, Jeff Page, about personality tests. We were talking about the Myers-Briggs. How many of you guys taking a Myers-Briggs test? You know what that is, right? And after you take the test, they give you initials, right? They give you initials like ETNJ or ISFP. Well, after sharing our initials from the test, Jeff quipped this. Let me be honest. Some days, every one of us is a J-E-R-K. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? At least on some days. You know, glad my wife's not here because she could tell you. But, but, but kidding, aside, kidding aside, we have to be careful not to overlook or underestimate the possibility and even the proclivity of our own apathy, of our own insensitivity, and sometimes maybe even our own cruelty. You know, in England, uh, in the early 1900s, there was once put out in the newspaper for readers to write in and respond to this question. What's wrong with the world today? That was the big question they put in there. And the great Christian writer G.K. Chesterton wrote in, and he simply wrote these profound words, Dear Sir, I am. That's a bit humorous, a little convicting. But because this is really a crucial and serious issue, I want to drill down a little bit and put a finer point on this. See, to truly grow in humility in our relationship with God and other people, we need to walk in reality. And reality is that given the right conditions, I could do what Peter did. Quite frankly, given the right conditions, I could write what that professor wrote. In 1973, Russian writer and Christian Alexander Solzhenitsyn made, uh, a, uh, wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago. And it was an account of the Soviet prison system based on his own research, but also his own experience as a prisoner in the Gulag system. And part of what he realized through his own personal suffering and torture is that, the, you know, the reality of human evil is a little more complex than he first thought. He realized, he really realized that given the right conditions, he too could have been the torturer and not just the tortured. He too could have been the victimizer and not the victim. Now, please excuse this rather lengthy quote from him, but I think it's profound and it really speaks wisdom to our current cultural situation. So allow me to read this here. He said this. You know, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. 
Oh, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And, and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. For so simple. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You know, in a day of identity politics and extreme partisanship, these are very challenging, sober and wise words. We're, we're a culture who vilifies a lot of people now, don't we? You know, part of the point here is that our impulse to judge, to blame others, or a particular group, or a particular class, a religion, a gender, for all the things that are messed up in the world, needs to be shaped, needs to be restrained by the sober reality of our own weaknesses and shortcomings, as well as our very real proclivity towards moral failure and sin. I mean, just think about it for a second. How different would things have gone in this scenario in Mark 15 if these men paused for, uh, Mark 14, should I say, uh, paused for a moment and they took in what Jesus said and reflected on their own proclivity to be weak, to be cowardly, to be sinful and run. What if they said, wow, you know, as much as I love following you, Jesus, I am capable of desertion. I know that's in me, at least to some degree. So how, Lord, can I not become one who deserts you? What if they said that to Jesus that night? What would have been the outcome, do you think? A little different? Let me just say, before I move on, Peter eventually got it right. So right that he eventually wrote it in his own letters many years after the incident in Mark 14. 1 Peter 5 says these words, and we sang about them a little while ago. All of you. Not most of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud. However right or zealous, by the way, you might be, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And isn't that exactly what happened in Peter's life? That Jesus eventually lifted him back up in due time. I can't help but wonder how much of the wisdom of these verses that Peter wrote started to be forged that fateful night in Mark 14. Now, I know that what I'm saying here, and by the look on your faces, is a pretty heavy-duty point in the message, isn't it? Okay, uh, But I go here because... Because as we see in Peter, Christian zeal is simply not enough to bring about God's best in the world, the mark. It's not enough partly because personal and communal and societal sins and problems often have very, very complex uh, answers. They're often complicated and very difficult to change and resolve. Blasting out denigrating uh, tweets or, or Facebook rants are very unlikely to change anything. And that's part of the reason why zeal without knowledge, without wisdom, is not enough because it will require humble wisdom to wade through the complexities and hit the mark, God's mark, of a broken world. Now, let me end with this. I think the biggest part of this intense scene, it's hard to see right away, but this intense scene in Mark 14 is when Jesus fills it with grace and hope. Even as Jesus is predicting the, the impending failure of these guys, he communicates grace to them. Maybe you missed it, but here it is. In Mark 14, he says, you will all become deserters. And then he offers this very important, but, 
But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you see what's happening there? He's saying, look, even though you will abandon me, I will not abandon you. After you guys blow it, I will meet up with you again to continue this work. Your failure will not mean you won't have a future with me. And then that, that super encouraging. Like this is a microcosm, a big part of the gospel message, that though we may be arrogant and foolish, untamed sinners, Jesus continues to love us. And, and if we would but humble ourselves and give ourselves fully and completely to him, we too could have a new kind of future with him, not only in heaven, but here on earth as well. Now just think of the amazing ministry that Peter had for the next three decades after this evening. Think of the lives he changed, the miracles he performed, the souls he saved for all eternity. So as you leave here today, I want to reassure you that your failure, however epic, is not the last word over you. His faithfulness is. Our failure, our failure does not mean we won't have a future with Jesus. That's what the death and resurrection of Jesus does. It gives a future where there has been failure. Amen? Amen. Not because that there's a future there, not because our love is so strong and consistent for him, but because his love is so strong and unwavering to us. That is some good news. So as we conclude, reflect for a moment. How's it going, folks? Are you hitting the mark? Not your mark. God's mark. Are you hitting God's mark in your walk, in your words, in your attitude towards others? Does your zeal have enough room for those who fail to live as God intended? Guys like Peter? Guys like Steve Page? Do I have room in your heart for grace? that I'm wearing jeans. <laughs> and finally, if you came here this morning feeling like a bit of a failure, like I mean really unredeemable, unforgivable, just, just reprehensible, and a lot of us feel that. We often beat ourselves up. Can I ask you to bring those failures to Jesus this morning so that you can find his grace and mercy the way the disciples did? Now, this next song that the worship theater, or Ross is going to sing here, is so powerful. Please meditate it on it as you reflect on what God's word is for you today before you leave here today. Um, let the words of this song, they're on your bulletin, they'll be up here. Let them become the longing of your heart. I got chicken skin listening to that song. I mean, I, it's just... <sighs> Thank you, Lord, for being patient with me. It's so hard to see when my eyes are on me. I want to die and let you give your life to me so I might live. Man, if that's the desire of your heart today, may you carry the torch for Jesus. You know, by the way, I hope you haven't heard like, don't be zealous for Jesus. Paul says in Romans, be zealous. You know, it's a good thing. But may your zeal be wise. May it be loving. Martin Luther King said, those who you would change, you must first love. Keep that in mind about the people you want to see change. You know who they are. Those who you would change, you must first love. If you're able, please stand as I give the blessing before we go.
Oh, by the way, before we uh, uh, take off here, to my right and to my left, we'll have prayer teams. For anybody who wants prayer, for healing, for wisdom, for guidance, for just talking to somebody, please come forward. And if today's the day you walked in here feeling like a failure, let us pray redemption over you. Let us pray mercy, grace, forgiveness over your life. Give us that opportunity and gift that we may serve you in such a way. And if you don't know Jesus, come forward to these people and give your heart to him. I don't care what kind of failure you've been through. Your failure does not mean you don't have a future with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. And now may the Lord fill you with his fire so that you may hit his mark in all that you do this week. May you go forth from here filled with the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ to become his arms, his hands, his ears, and his words to a lost, dying, and arrogant world. You show them what humble wisdom and graciousness looks like. To God be all the glory and all his people said, Amen. Make no mistake, it's not just other Christians. We all can be more gracious, more thoughtful, more humble as we live our lives and especially as we interact with the world. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Prez website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 930, and 1111. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. If you need more, you can always call us at 808 808- Five three two one 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 one. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thank you for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2019 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.